0: Good morning. Get settled up here. Um, it is great to be with y'all this morning. I um, During that worship, I was just hearing so much of the message that God put on my heart and that I had prepared echoed back to me. And the we don't coordinate anything between the worship team and whoever's speaking on Sundays. And so for me, that's just, you know, God being all over this which is just super exciting Um, so anyway excited to get into it this morning my name is Moses Shoyola I'm on the team of lay elders here at lower Manhattan Community Church and we are continuing in our glorifying God series this morning Um, Last week, as we read together the book of 1 John as a church, Alicia brought a message about how the everyday choices we make, even those mundane everyday choices, either glorify God or fall short of glorifying him, and that we have to be conscious of that. And then this week, we're in 2 John, and we're focusing on the idea of being diligent in our relationship with Jesus. And by way of overview and introduction to the book of 2 John, it's really, really short. It's one chapter, 13 verses, and at 245 words, it's the second shortest book of the Bible. So if you're looking for an easy way in, 2 John is it. And when I was reading it, one verse in particular jumped out to me, and that was verse 7, which says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And when I read that, I realized that the Apostle John was responding to a common problem that he saw in his day. And it's a common problem that we have now, which is that we act like Jesus didn't come in the flesh. We might think it's really great that he told us to love our enemies or that he railed against oppressive governments and the religious elite. And that he told us to help the marginalized. We might really love Jesus' words like we love the words of a great fictional character. We might even quote him like we would one of our favorite characters. But we might think of him as no more than that. A great character. Maybe one of our favorites even. And so we often deny the reality of Jesus by our attitudes and actions and habits. Acting as if he didn't really do the things that the Bible said he did. Because if there really was a guy who helped people and healed them just by touching them and telling them to get up, who raised dead people just by telling them to come out of their tombs or to wake up, who walked on water, who turned five loaves and two pieces of fish into a meal for 5,000 people, who told a storm to be quiet and it listened, who then himself was crucified brutally and then raised three days later, and who then ascended to heaven, there was a person who existed and actually did all those things, that kind of changes everything. It changes everything. If all of that's true in a historical sense, not in a metaphorical sense, then being a follower of Jesus means living in the reality of having access to the same power and dominion over the various aspects of this world that he did. The problem in John's day, as in ours, is that we often act like Jesus didn't come in the flesh. We act like everything is still the same. We act like we don't have access to his power over physics and nature and spirits and even sin and death. We act like the curse of sin and death hasn't been reversed and like we don't actually have power over the brokenness in our world instead of it having power over us. And the way to combat that problem of not living in this new reality, the way to combat that problem then and now, is to abide and obey. To abide, to stay rooted in Christ, fixing our eyes on him, continually reminding ourselves of who he is and who he says we are and what we have access to in him. And to obey him, to follow him, to listen to him, to do what he tells us to do. And abiding and obeying requires a lot of diligence it requires a lot of diligence because we're not doing this in a vacuum. We have an enemy who opposes us and doesn't want us to abide and obey our natural tendency of our flesh is to not abide and obey and the influence of the world around us generally does not encourage us to abide in Christ and obey him. So we have to be diligent about it. And diligence is defined as careful and persistent work and effort. We have to be careful and persistent. We have to put in sustained and significant work and effort to abide and obey. It looks like what Paul was saying in Philippians three when he says, I don't act like I've already obtained the prize of resurrection. I don't act like I'm already perfect. I don't get complacent. I strain forward, I press on toward the goal. Diligence looks like pressing on. Diligence looks like continually pursuing and plumbing the inexhaustible depths of relationship with Jesus and all that he offers. That's diligence, sustained and continuous effort, pursuing, pursuing, and pursuing deeper relationship with him. And that's kind of the whole message. Be diligent. Go be diligent. It's not that simple. And so I want to spend the rest of the morning looking at two different groups of people, and seeing how diligence applies for these different groups. First, there are the naturally diligent folks, people for whom putting in persistent and careful effort comes naturally. It characterizes this group of people's approach to most of life. Those are the naturally diligent people. My wife, Sherry, is in this camp. People in this camp are go-getters, super thoughtful, super detail-oriented, super conscientious. They don't leave any stones unturned, or any I's undotted, or any T's uncrossed. And if I had to guess which city in all the world had the highest concentration of naturally diligent people, it's probably this one, New York City, because New Yorkers are ambitious, New Yorkers are high achieving, New Yorkers are type A, and diligence goes hand in hand with those things. It goes hand in hand with ambition, and high achievement, and being type A. So that's one group of folks, the naturally diligent folks. And then there's the second group, These are the folks who are naturally more carefree and even laid back. This is the camp I'm in I like to go with the flow. I'm not very thorough. I remember actually right out of college I was working at Goldman Sachs and a senior person in our group was talking to us and he was like, we're all type A here so, and and I forget the rest of what he said, but I remember looking around sheepishly thinking, am I the only one? (laughs) And I assume there's more people like me out here who feel like a little bit of a fish out of water in these environments that are dominated by all the naturally diligent folks. So if you're in that camp, you're not alone, I see you, I get you. Um, So those are the two camps, the laid back folks and the naturally diligent folks. And we'll we'll address each group separately. And first, we'll speak to us laid back types and how folks in this camp can cultivate diligence and then to the naturally diligent types and look at how folks in that camp Can cultivate diligence. So starting with the laid back camp. The major pitfall of being laid back in our relationship with Jesus is obvious. It's straightforward. And it's that we never get off our backs to reap the benefits of diligence. The pitfall is that we never get off our backs to reap the benefits of diligence. But here's the thing I've learned. It's really hard to cultivate diligence late in life. And positive motivation doesn't really work for at least for me as a laid back person. We miss the memo, we laid back people on delayed gratification, so carrots don't work. FOMO, fear of missing out on good things, doesn't really work. It's not a strong enough motivator to get us to cultivate diligence. It doesn't quite do the trick. But negative motivation does. And scripture is full of negative motivation. It's, It's also full of positive motivation, but that doesn't really work for us. So we get to look at the negative motivation and there's some good negative motivation in the book of Hebrews. The writer talks about how God's people were not diligent about obeying and following him after escaping Egypt. And because of that a whole generation has to spend 40 years wandering the wilderness and not getting to see the promised land. And so the writer encourages us in Hebrews 4:11, the verse we just read, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest so that we do not fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest so that we do not fall according to the same example of disobedience. The negative motivation here, the consequence of not cultivating diligence is getting stuck in the wilderness. And for us, that's a spiritual wilderness. And we all know what spiritual wilderness looks like. We've all been there. I can personally attest to spiritual wilderness The spiritual wilderness that comes from not being diligent in my relationship with Jesus. The spiritual wilderness of feeling lost. The spiritual wilderness of feeling dissatisfied about everything. The spiritual wilderness of feeling unfulfilled. Feeling like nothing makes sense, like you can't make sense of up from down. Can't discern where to go and what to do. The spiritual wilderness of not showing up fully as a husband or a dad or a friend spiritual wilderness of not showing up fully at work or in service to others or in ministry. Spiritual wilderness is the consequence of not cultivating diligence, of being laid back in our relationship with Jesus. And that's been my experience over and over again. For whatever reason, I lose that consistency, I stop having my quality daily time with him, and I find myself in a spiritual wilderness. And at first I don't think I'm there, think, oh, I'm just tired, or it's been a busy few days, or a tough few weeks, and then it gets more dissatisfying, more unfulfilling. I realize I'm letting people down, and it just comes back to that I had not been showing up in relationship with Jesus, and so I have to redo the exercise of removing all the obstacles to relationship with him. And as I've done that recently, I've been spending a lot of time in the Gospels, the Chosen has this blended harmony of the Gospels that I've been reading. It puts together all the Gospels in chronological order. It's awesome. It's a 40-day reading plan. It's right here. You should get it. Um, and I've just been in awe of Jesus and his complete dominion. Earlier, I talked about his dominion over physics and biology and nature and death itself. But I've also just been in awe of his dominion over himself, his complete self-possession. He knows exactly how to respond to the person or the situation that's right in front of him. He knows when to go in hard and rebuke someone, like when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He knows when to show mercy, like when he also says to Peter, you're restored, feed my lambs. He knows when to answer a question directly, like when he teaches his disciples how to pray. And he knows when not to answer a question directly, like when he speaks in parables or doesn't give an answer at all. He knows when to celebrate and encourage others. He knows when to weep with others. And I see Jesus doing this and I think, this is what it was supposed to be like. This is what I'm supposed to be like. This is what I'm supposed to have. And the only time I get anywhere near that is when I stay in Jesus' story, when I let Him lead me out of my self imposed wilderness. Staying in his story helps me remember that I'm created to have the dominion that he had over everything, especially myself over all those things that seem beyond me, over all those things I can't seem to get over. Cultivating diligence and staying in his story helps me remember that I can do all these things. I can master all these things rather than be mastered by them through him who's giving me the power and the strength. And when I find myself in his story and him in me, I find my way out of the spiritual wilderness things turn right side up and don't seem so dissatisfying. I have the power to show up in relationships, and I'm energized and fulfilled even when things don't go my way. So that's the word for laid back people. The consequence of that approach to relationship with Jesus is spiritual wilderness. And spiritual wilderness isn't fun. So we have to remove the obstacles to cultivating relationship with him and staying in Jesus' story. Now on to the naturally diligent folks, which I imagine is a lot of people in this room. The folks who are naturally persistent and careful in your efforts. Folks that approach everything with gusto and attention to detail and thoroughness. And the pitfall for the people in the naturally diligent camp is doing too much and missing the original goal of diligence. Because what can happen with folks that are naturally diligent is that you can go overboard. The great illustration of this is the story of Martha and Mary. And as someone in the laid-back camp, I love this story, but I know that it probably bothers a lot of y'all who are in the naturally diligent camp. Quick summary of the story. Jesus is coming to visit some of his friends, a pair of sisters named Mary and Martha, and not everything is ready by the time he gets there. And we find Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, and we find Martha running around like a chicken with her head cut off, trying to finish getting everything ready. And at some point, Martha's like, Jesus, tell Mary to help me. Before we look at Jesus' response, I want to pause for a second, because I know that all of y'all who are naturally diligent really feel for Martha. Like, we don't see what was happening before Jesus got there. Had Mary been helping at all? Like, maybe if Mary had been doing something, we wouldn't be in this mess where things aren't ready, and we're hurried and trying to get everything ready. It's kind of how y'all feel, right? And of course we expect, and Martha expects Jesus to say back, oh, Martha, you're so right. Like, my bad, look at me yapping away and you're doing all that work. Mary, let's get in there. That's not what he says. Jesus says back to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Man, what a gut punch for the naturally diligent people out there. Laid-back Mary has chosen the good portion, it will not be taken away from her. But the truth is, Martha missed what naturally diligent people often miss, the actual goal. And we see the actual goal in that same verse from Hebrews, which says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Rest is the goal. Rest is the end game. Not achievement, not accolades, not ambition, not the work itself. Rest is the goal. And naturally diligent people can be so immersed in their diligence, you begin to think diligence itself is the goal. You begin to think the work itself is the goal, but the goal is rest in relationship with Jesus. And yeah, we should be diligent about getting to that goal, but we can't be so blinded by our diligence that we miss the goal. Because see, there's a difference between restful diligence and restless diligence. And Martha diligence is restless diligence. Starts off with a good goal in mind, This is the Messiah we're talking about after all. Not gonna treat Jesus like some stranger off the street. It needs to be as close as Martha can get to a five star Ritz Carlton experience. But then time gets late and things get hurried and then it turns into the kind of diligence where she's anxious and worried and she misses getting to sit at the feet of the Messiah. She misses the rest that's right in front of her with Jesus. We can't forget that the ultimate goal is rest in relationship with him. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. At the end of the parable of the talents... Yeah, the master who represents Jesus gives additional responsibility to the diligent ones who produced a return, but that's not the end game. He says the ultimate goal. Right after that, he says, you've been faithful. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy of relationship with our master is the goal. So instead of restless diligence that seeks achievement or accolades or even the work itself as the end game, it's important that we practice restful diligence where the end game is rest. And the key to practicing restful diligence is to remember that Jesus has done it all. He's gone ahead and done all the work. So we don't have to earn rest in relationship with him. There's nothing we can do to earn it, there's nothing we can do to prove ourselves worthy of it. There's nothing we can do to make it so he owes it to us. It's an inheritance, it's a gift. It's just there to feast on and drink up. And when we remember that, our diligence can flow from that place of inheritance, from that place of rest and relationship. It's not something we have to do because no one else will. Something we get to do because we're in relationship with the one who's done it all for us. Something we get to do because he invites us into it and we get to walk alongside him in the work. That's the word for those of us who are in the naturally diligent camp. We have to look out for overdoing it, for doing too much because we think the diligence itself is the ultimate goal rather than rest and relationship with Jesus. And the key is remembering that he's done it all. There's nothing to earn and nothing to prove. Now, the last thing I want to touch on this morning and share is a personal experience I had with Jesus, which for me was incredibly powerful in unlocking spiritual diligence. Not too long ago, I found myself in a spiritual wilderness. I was going through a cycle of shame and failure narratives in pretty much every area of my life. Felt like I wasn't doing anything right, didn't know how to make good decisions. And I was in a counseling session and we identified that core part of me that was experiencing those shame and failure narratives. And then we invited Jesus to speak into it. And what he said floored me. He said, Moses, you're my guy. And that floored me because I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting... You can be better. You know I've forgiven you. You know you don't have to stay in this place. Get a grip and get after it. That's not what he said. What he said was Moses, you're my guy. And I say back, but what about this thing that I messed up or that thing that I got wrong? He says, Yeah, I know about those things. You're my guy. Yeah, I saw that. You're my guy. You're my guy, you're my guy, you're my guy. And that was a powerful experience for me, just hearing him say that to me directly. Not having to extrapolate it theologically from his death and resurrection, but just hearing him tell me, you're my guy, which for me captures all of it. And when it comes to cultivating the kind of diligence we're talking about, when it comes to being persistent, and careful in our efforts of pursuing deep relationship with him. This is all the motivation I needed. For laid back folks, this is the kind of positive motivation that actually works. Because it's not the kind that's a positive outcome that we're trying to get as a result of our efforts. It works because it completely changes where we're starting from. If I'm his guy, if he calls me his guy no matter what, I got to honor that, not to prove it, not to prove that I'm his guy, not because he's going to be mad or disappointed if I don't show up, not because he'll say he's done with me if I screw up. That actually would be the easy way out, and he doesn't let me off that easy. He doesn't let me stop being his guy just because I mess up. It's just the opposite. I'm his guy no matter what, So no matter what, I'm still representing him. No matter what I've done, the things I do going forward will either show that I honor him and love him and glorify him or they won't. And because he says to me, Moses, you're my guy no matter what, because I see that that is the way that he loves me and cherishes me and honors me, I can't help but respond back with a desire to show him that I love him and cherish him and honor him too. That's exactly what many of us need to hear. Jesus saying to us, you're my guy, no matter what. You're my gal, no matter what. It's not just the laid back folks that need to hear it either, because it's also the security that naturally diligent folks need in order to not overdo it. That security, hearing Jesus say, you're my guy or you're my gal, no matter what, It's what we need to hear to set aside that natural tendency to try to earn our place, that natural tendency to be anxious and miss out on the rest that he offers. It's the security we need to just receive from Jesus, rest in Jesus, and follow him. And then diligence becomes restful rather than restless. Let's be diligent to enter that rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're just so in awe of you, in awe of your power, and in awe of how you love us and cherish us and honor us. And so, whether we're on the laid back end or on the naturally diligent end, just pray that by the power of your spirit you come and speak to us and tell us what we need to hear. Offer us that loving and cherishing and honoring word that will empower us to be diligent in abiding and obeying you. Help us to get your rest, to receive your rest. We know it's there for the taking. And so we ask it. In Jesus' name. Amen.